Hello, everybody. We are going to start a series here. We just finished the series on Undivided, and that was just um, powerful, the way God moved uh, in the services here and in small groups, and uh, that was beautiful. And now we're going into this, this holiday season, um, and sometimes we do Christmas series, sometimes we don't. Uh, we try to make uh, every weekend, in fact, our whole life, something about celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ and living that out. Um, and so we don't make that much of a big deal over the particularity of the, the Christmas season. But sometimes we, we do a little series. And we want to do that uh, this year. We feel called in a specific way to talk about a specific topic. Uh, and we'll be doing this for the next four weeks probably. Maybe a little longer. You know, we'll see how these things go. Uh, but we want to entitle this series, uh, A Subversive Christmas. Ooh. And I want to entitle this message, which is just kind of launching this whole thing off, Celebrating a Subversive King. The word subversion or subversive, it means to undermine uh, the authority or the legitimacy of, usually it's an established regime, organization, or government, and to do it by indirect means. To subtly subvert, to undermine, or to delegitimize the authority and the power of an established regime by indirect means. And what we're going to see in this series is that if we understand the Christmas message as it's supposed to be understood in its original context, well, it's subversive to the core. Uh, I'd like to read from the, the book of Luke, of course. Never get out of the book of Luke. Uh, his version of the Christmas story. I'm just going to read the first couple verses just to get this thing sort of primed. He starts his story in Luke 2, talking about the birth of Jesus, by saying, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. What's, what Caesar was interested in is taxes. So he wants to make sure that everyone's paying their dues, so he's trying to get a, a, a handle on who all is out there. This was the first census that took place while, or could be before, Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I thank you for your presence in this place. And in this message, in this worship set, I pray, Lord God, that you would just intensify your presence in our minds as your word goes forward. And for everyone in this auditorium and for everyone who's maybe listening through podcasts or television or some other, other means, Holy Spirit, be at work in their lives, in their heart, in their minds to receive your word deeply. And Lord, uh, I pray that you would implant in our hearts a revolutionary spirit. That's, co- that, that's bold and courageous and uh, refuses to compromise. Make us ambassadors of your kingdom, your beautiful kingdom. And help us, to, Lord, really get our minds and hearts around the true meaning of this story. This beautiful, beautiful, powerful, subversive story. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 I, a lot of us, when we hear the Christmas story uh, told this time of year, it, it has sort of the feel of a fairy tale. Uh, it, it sounds like a fable. Once upon a time, there was a virgin and an angel appeared to this virgin. Once upon a time, there was a baby born in a manger. Once upon a time, there were some shepherds uh, you know, watching over their flock. And it has a once upon a time kind of feel to it. And the reason it has that is because uh, more often than not, at this time of year in particular, we take that story and abstract it out of real history. 
We, we, we divorce it from what was going on at the time. And so it has this sort of fairy tale feel to it. Unfortunately, the meaning of the story is inextricably woven in with what was going on at the time. The actual history surrounding this event. So to understand the story, you really need to put it in its historical context. The Christmas story is not an abstract story about how God became a human being. It's rather a particular story about how God became a particular human being at a particular place, at a particular time, in a particular historical, political, and religious situation. Okay, it's a story about how God became a human being when Rome dominated the world, or at least all the, 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 most of the known world. And, it was, it, and when, when Caesar Augustus was the, the king of Rome, and, and when Herod was king of the Jews, and when, when Quirinius was the governor in, in Syria, and so on and so on. It's a particular story, and its meaning, its meaning is wrapped up in that particularity. And when we understand it in that particularity, in its historical context, well, we'll see that it's a subversive story. At the core, it's a story about a king who came... To subvert the world system. To ultimately set in motion a movement that would overthrow all the kingdoms of this world and transform the entire planet. It's a subversive message. And if we understand this, it will not only change the way we interpret Christmas, but it will have massive implications for our life. Because to belong to the kingdom means that you join this subversive uh, movement. Okay, so I'm going to start where Luke starts. He starts with Caesar Augustus. Let's start with Caesar Augustus. But to understand what Caesar Augustus is about, you've got to understand that uh, for about three centuries, there had been already in place a dream of Roman domination. It really goes back to this guy named Alexander the Great, who was a genius and a maniac. Uh, He wanted to conquer the entire world. His idea was that that if you want peace on earth, well, then what you need to have is, is one culture and one government and one ruler, and it should be him. And so if we could just bring everything under his authority, there would be peace on earth. And he believed very strongly that, that Greece uh, represented the, the, you know, the, the, the highest achievement of, of human culture and intelligence. So you're actually doing the world a favor by conquering the whole world and making it Greek-like. It was called Hellenization. That was Alexander's dream. Now, he didn't succeed in doing that, but it's amazing how far he got. Uh, he, he, he just was the most ambitious conqueror and one of the most ruthless conquerors in all of world history. He didn't succeed, but that dream went on. A dream of, of Rome dominating the world. And it was reaching its pinnacle around the time of Christ. The Roman Empire was, was vast around the time of, of, of Christ. Um, it's amazing how long and how vast this empire was. It went from Europe all the way over to Arabia, down to North Africa. It was just massive, and it endured for a long, long time. And it was at its pinnacle around the time of Christ, uh, the, the, the few years before and a few centuries after. The dream was living on. They called this dream around the time of Christ Pax Romana, which in Latin means the peace of Rome. Because the dream was if Rome could just conquer everybody, well, then there'd be peace and one ruler over this world. But the idea of Pax Romana, this peace over the whole earth, was really more propaganda than it was anything else. And the Romans were experts at propaganda. Uh, The peace was really along these lines. Uh, They'd go to a country, a nation, and they'd say, tell you what, you want to have peace? Submit to us or die. (laughs) 
That's the price tag of peace. Submit to us or you'll die. And the way they kept peace was really by making every conquered state sort of a police state. They had a military presence everywhere. And if there was any sign of an uprising, any sign of a rebellion, they would crush it. They would overkill. Uh, Their idea was that if you want peace, in fact, one historian said this, that the genius of Rome, and the reason why it endured so long is they found a way to use terror in service to peace. And if you keep people terrorized enough, they won't rebel. And so they were, they were absolutely brutal, just vicious in the way that they would squash rebellions or any rumor of rebellions. They'd go in there and they'd round up the rebels and round up their families, sometimes round up the entire town and slaughter them. Their favorite instrument of terror was the cross. They were masters at torture, how to prolong death, how to make it as excruciating as possible. And so what they would do is take these rebels or everyday criminals and they would publicly execute them, not quickly. No, it would take sometimes days for these folks to die on a cross. And they would, in public places, along roadsides, put up these crucified criminals. They would uh, strip them of all their clothes. Sometimes, uh, before these folks even died, the birds would be down there plucking out their eyes. It was a brutal way to die. It wasn't uncommon to be traveling around somewhere in the Roman Empire. And uh, you could look up on the hill and see dozens, sometimes hundreds, in a few cases, thousands of people crucified at once. Hearing their moaning and their groaning from a long distance away. And all of that is, it was Rome's way of saying, do you really want to mess with us? They would flex their muscle and kill. Peace through terror. That's the world that Caesar comes into. Now Caesar himself was, was a, a megalomaniac and a genius. Uh, he was uh, crazy like most of these Roman Empire emperors were, but he was brilliant when it came to military strategies. Those two things unfortunately seem to go hand in hand quite frequently in, the, in world history. In 27 BC, he managed to consolidate all the power of Rome to himself. Up to that point, Rome had been a republic. It was run by a senate. The emperor had the most authority, but there were checks and balances in place. Caesar, in in terms of realizing that dream of Alexander the Great, said, no, there has to be one authority. This is not efficient. And so he found a way to consolidate all of the authority of Rome, this expansive, massive, powerful, brutal empire. He consolidated all of its power under him. And uh, he came to see himself, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and this guy just got corrupt and jaded, and he came to see himself as a god. It's actually not clear, historians debate, whether he actually believed that or whether that was just one more piece of propaganda, but either way, the thinking was this. An empire this vast and this great needs a common religion, a civil religion. Most sociologists say that every uh, nation, every empire needs some sort of shared religious beliefs. And so they needed a civil religion to unite this thing. And so the idea was that what would unite Rome is, is to have a, a religion that would be centered on the emperor, the worship of the emperor. He would be seen as God incarnate. And, and, uh, and, and, and so this would unite all of, of Rome. It's called the, the, the cult of the emperor, the worship of the emperor. And it began with Caesar Augustus. Um, you find at this time that statues start to be built uh, to Caesar and shrines start to be erected to Caesar. People start making offerings to him and uh, uh, creating hymns that were sung to him and, and uh, offering praise to him. It was the cult of the empire. Now what's interesting for us and what's important for us to realize is that the language, at least some of the language that was used of Caesar, Caesar Augustus, when he came to see himself or at least 
spread out the word that he was a God. Some of that language anticipates, echoes the language that was used of Christ by the early Christians. For example, it was said that Caesar is Lord. In fact, that was sort of the national anthem of the ancient Roman world. Uh, it, It was the confession that united the Roman Empire. You had to always say Caesar is Lord. Just like in Nazi Germany, they'd say Heil Hitler. You had to say Heil Hitler back. And if you didn't, you were guilty of treason and you could be killed. So all over the Roman Empire, they say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. Sometimes they'd add, Caesar is Lord of all. And if you were a citizen of the Roman Empire, you had to respond in kind, Caesar is Lord. That's why a lot of Christians, most of them, got killed, because they would not say that. Uh, He was referred to as the son of a God, the son of a God, and he was worshipped as God. In 17 BC, there was some weird comet in the sky, and the priests interpreted that as being uh, his father, Julius, ascending to the level of the gods. And so if his father was a god, that means he was a son of God. And so they worshipped him as a god on earth, the son of God. He was said to be the bringer of peace. Peace on earth, goodwill to all humankind. Why? Because now Alexander's dream is being realized. All the power is in this divinity, Caesar Augustus. He's the bringer of peace. He's the savior of the world. We find in Virgil as he's writing all these hymns to Caesar, he's called the savior of all. Savior of humankind. His birth and his reign are announced as good news. The word there is euangelion. We get the word evangelize from it. We also get the word gospel from it. His his birth and his reign is the gospel. The gospel of God to the world. The good news to the world. He is called the king of the world. The world is called the kingdom of Caesar. The kingdom of the world is... He's heralded as that. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, if you've read it at all or heard many sermons, you know that those are terms that are applied to Christ in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament. We find that Jesus Christ, of course, is called Lord, kudios. And in the monotheistic context that the the New Testament movement was birthed, uh, to call Jesus Christ Lord means he's Lord of all. He's the one Lord God. Jesus is Lord. He's called the Son of God, of course, and he's worshipped as the Son of God. He's worshipped as God on earth. He's said to be the bringer of peace. In fact, you find in the Christmas stories very frequently, mixed in with the message of the birth of Jesus, is now peace will come on earth, goodwill to human beings. He's, of course, called the Savior. The angel tells Mary as he's announcing that you're going to conceive and have a child, he says he will save his people from their sins. He's the Savior of the world. His birth is announced as the good news. In fact, the message he brings is the good news. The angels announce, I've got good news for you, to the shepherds, to Mary, to others. This is the euangelion. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The king has come into this world. The same terms that were used of Caesar Augustus. And, of course, the world is called, or will be, the kingdom of God. The movement that Jesus birthed is called the kingdom of God. Later on, it's called the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of his son. Now, you see here direct parallels. In terms of the language that's used of Caesar and the language that's used of Christ. Scholars debate as to the extent to which the New Testament authors were intentionally uh, mimicking the language of the empire. Because you can find most of this terminology that they use of Christ in the Old Testament. But either way, it's very clear, all agree, that this language is subversive language. It's language that is politically charged. You start in the first century calling somebody other than Caesar Lord, and it's got implications. You call him the son of God, and you're not talking about Caesar, you're asking for trouble. You talk about a kingdom, and you don't mean the kingdom of Caesar, well, you're, you're declaring war. 
to say that somebody else is the bringer of peace or the savior of the world. See, those are politically loaded terms. They are in competition with the terms that were used of Caesar. And that is a dangerous thing to do in the first century. That kind of thing can easily get you killed. It's subversive language. You're, you're delegitimizing the kingship and the lordship and the kingdom of Caesar in using these kind of terms. And they understood this. They knew exactly what they're doing. They weren't trying to start a political movement that would overthrow the politics of the day, but they knew they were starting a movement that would overthrow the kingdoms of this world. You find this with Mary, for example, when she's giving her marvelous song in the Christmas story, celebrating the child that's within in her. Listen to this. It says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones. She's speaking uh, uh, prophetically in a prolectic way, which just means you speak about the future in a present tense. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. First century, Roman Empire, this is revolutionary talk. You start talking about rulers being dethroned, and you're asking for trouble. You're saying that the birth of this child is going to result in uh, the overthrow of Caesar's kingdom, and you are asking for trouble. What Mary is saying here is that this baby, when this baby comes into the world, well, there's going to be a new king enthroned, and there's going to be a new kingdom, and there's going to be a new agenda, a new world order. It's going to overthrow everything that is here. The, 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 the powerful shall be brought low. The humble will be exalted. The proud will be brought down. The meek will be exalted. Those rich oppressors will be brought down, but the poor are going to be exalted. The world's going to be turned upside down because there's a new baby coming into this world. And he's king. He's the real king, which delegitimizes all other claims to king, delegitimizes all other kingdoms. This, this is subversive to the core. We've got to see this. To us, maybe it's this sort of religious language. In the first century, this is politically charged language. The, it's revolutionary talk. It's subversive talk. To say Jesus Christ is Lord is to say Caesar ain't. See, to say that you're going to worship Jesus means you're not going to worship Caesar. If you're going to say Jesus is the bringer of peace, you're saying whatever Caesar brings, it's not real peace. And to say that Jesus is the savior of the world is to say Caesar doesn't save squat. To say that, that, that the birth of Jesus is good news means that the birth and the reign of Caesar, whatever else it is, is not all that good. The best that the kingdoms of the world can offer you are is mediocrity. It's not really good news. To say that Jesus is the king of the world means that Caesar, he's not really the king of anything. And to say that Jesus' kingdom will never end, which they say over and over again, means that Caesar's kingdom is coming to an end. All the kingdoms of this world are coming to an end. The empire of China will come to an end. The empire of Russia has come to an end. The empire of the United States is going to come to an end. All the, Rome came to an end. No one would have believed it at the time. It was so powerful. It lasted so long. It was so mighty. It was expanding. But the Roman Empire and, and the, the Babylonian Empire and the Syrian Empire, they all come to an end. All empires come to an end. But the kingdom of God, oh, once it's planted, that mustard seed grows and grows and grows and grows, and it will never, never, never end. Of his reign, there will be no end, praise God. It's a subversive kingdom. This kind of talk, this kind of talk is, is, is dangerous. To say all power and glory and honor and loyalty belong to Jesus is to say no power, no loyalty, no honor belong to Caesar. That kind of talk will get you killed, and it did get them killed. First three centuries of church history, they were, they were, they, they, it was on and off bloodbath. 
They were slaughtered, sometimes in brutal ways, sometimes in ways that were so brutal that even some of the, the Romans, uh, the, the historians who were used to this brutality, felt sorry for them. Tacitus, he's writing about the slaughtering of the Christians under Nero, and you can see, it's like, whoa, that was kind of going overboard. I mean, they would feed them to lions. They would tar them and impale them on posts and let them on fire and do it as a joke. Christians were slaughtered all over the place. But what's really interesting is that they really didn't mind. I mean, it wasn't like the most pleasant thing in the world to go through, but if you read these early writings of the early Christians, they considered it an honor to die the way Jesus died. They figured if Jesus' death was a victory over Satan, then their death is a victory over Satan. And this is how they would bear witness to the reality of a subversive king and a subversive kingdom. We belong to a different regime altogether, and they bore witness to that by dying. In fact, the word witness in Greek is martyr. And it didn't mean, it wasn't synonymous with someone who gives their life until over three centuries. It was the main way that the Christians bore witness was by dying, so it became synonymous with giving your life for a cause. But that's how they bore witness, and they considered it an honor. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of amazing when you think about it that first three centuries of church history, people considered it an honor to die for their faith, to bear witness. And sadly, we have a whole culture of Christians who, it seems like the thing that's most on their mind is fighting for their rights to own guns. Uh, what, what happened along the way? Something changed. This is what the book of Revelation is about, by the way. I've been immersed in the book of Revelation the last couple of months, and I'm just getting, I, I, it's, it's an incredibly genius, beautiful book. Uh, it's all about the glory of martyrdom and bearing witness to this other, this other kingdom through sacrifice. In Revelation 12, verse 11, it's kind of a theme verse. It says, they triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That was their victory. Their victory was their death. That's how they conquered Satan. In fact, you find throughout the book of Revelation, I can't go into it now. This is a different message. We've got to have a seminar someday or something. I don't know. But, but uh, you know, you have all this violent imagery used throughout the book of Revelation. But see, if you read that book carefully, what John does, and it's, it's what, what the whole New Testament does, is it uses images and language that's out there, but it turns it on its head and subverts it. So you have the, the saints of God engaging in this mighty battle. Oh, yes, there's a warfare for sure. But how they do battle? They battle against Satan, uh, who's portrayed as the beast, and they battle against Rome, who's portrayed as Babylon, and the whole economic system, who's portrayed in the book of Revelation as the prostitute. But how they do battle? Not by killing people, but by being killed. It's, it's their death and the word of their testimony that, that allows them to overcome. And Jesus, he's doing all this warfare for sure, but how does he do warfare? Well, he does it like a slaughtered lamb. And he's bloody just like warriors are in battle. But read Revelations 19. He's bloody before he goes into battle. It's his own blood. That's it. He wins by shedding his own blood. And then he, he slays the nations, right? Well, look at the sword. It comes out of his mouth seven times in the book of Revelation. The sword comes out of his mouth. He does it by speaking truth. The word of their testimony and the blood of the lamb. It's an entirely different kind of warfare. And so what you get throughout the New Testament. It's a beautiful, it's, it's a beautiful book. How sad that it's being used the way it is these days. We fight a real battle, but we fight the way Christ fights. How does our king fight? Well, he, he, it's not direct. He doesn't fight direct. It's subversive. He, he fights by becoming a little baby, a vulnerable little baby, out in, the, out in a barn. And, and he fights them by siding with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and the lame. And then he, he fights by giving his life uh, for, for his enemies who are crucifying him. So also we're called to fight. But it's a different kind of battle. It's not power against power. 
Jesus didn't come down as a, a, an even mightier Caesar to fight Caesar. No, it comes as a little baby. So we don't fight power with power, or army with army, or swords with swords, or even laws with laws. No, the way, the way we do battle is by following, as it says in, in Revelations 14, you follow the lamb wherever he goes. You live like the lamb. We fight by getting meek. We fight by being humble. We fight by loving our enemies. We fight by refusing to be co-opted by the system, by refusing to go along with the pattern of the world, by refusing to cave in to the values of the world. We fight by bearing witness to a different kind of kingdom, by how we sacrifice of our resources for the poor, by not clinging to our life or clinging to our possessions, by trying to get the most out of life right here and now, but rather we fight. We do battle against Satan and we have victory over Satan by bleeding, by sacrificing, by serving, by caring. By swimming upstream in this culture. And we trust, maybe against all common sense, that that kind of fighting is what wins in the end. Because of his kingdom, there will be no end. That side, however it looks on Good Friday, believe me, Easter's coming, and then we'll see the victory. It's a subversive kingdom. Subversive to the core. So now the question is this. How should we celebrate the birthday of that king? See, here's the irony. You would think, wouldn't you, that the way to celebrate the birthday of this king would be well, to do more of the stuff he wanted us to do, being subversive, uh, you know, to be more self-sacrificial, go and give our life away. But the irony is this. You would think you'd celebrate the birthday of a subversive king by doing subversive countercultural activity, and yet no, at no time in the year is the... Value, are the values of the empire more celebrated than at this time of year? The values of the consumeristic culture are just celebrated this time of year. In fact, Christmas is what makes the economy run. It's been totally co-opted. And, see, and this isn't by accident, like a, you know, kind of a, evolved this way. It was very intentional. But 150 years ago, some very bright people in marketing got, came up with the, the best money-making scheme in history. They thought, you know, look, if we just take the Jesus story, which everyone's kind of, you know, believing in, we tidy it up a little bit, make it cute and quaint and sweet, and then, then, then we take this kind of Santa Claus mythology, which is kind of out there, but it's not a real big deal, take the Santa Claus mythology, throw in a reindeer or two, uh, you know, and, and, and we, we, we got ourselves a money-making cha-ching here. Uh, this is a great idea. It was, it, was, it was brilliant. Capitalism writing the coattails of faith mixed in with some trumped-up fa- fa- family sentimentalism with a whole lot of propaganda. You could ride the chimney down into the wallets of the parents. Ba-boom! You've got yourself a great idea. And it worked. It's massive. It was brilliant. Brilliant. Hey, a, a good book, by, uh, by the way, on this is, is uh, Christmas Unwrapped. It's called by Richard Horsley and James Tracy. It's kind of an academic book. Uh, but, but it really is just uh, enlightening in terms of unpacking some of the history of, of how this happened. And the result of this whole thing, we've got to be very honest here, is that we've got millions of people spending billions of dollars on unnecessary things for people who already have more than they need and doing it in a world where you've got more than a billion people who have less than they need, much less than they need. So we've got unnecessary toys and trinkets and ties and gadgets and widgets and socks Billions spent on that while we've got over a billion people who don't have food and water and shelter. What's happened is that the subversive message of Christmas has been subverted. Uh, And see, that's always the battle we fight. That is the main battle. That's what the book of Revelation is all about, being co-opted. So you just become part of the regime. And you don't notice that anything's really changed. Because on the surface, well, at least we're still talking about Jesus and... Uh, it, it, the subversive message has been subverted. 
Poison trinkets, billions spent on that, while billions, a billion don't have water, food, and shelter. And it's all being done in the name of the one who taught us not to chase after stuff, but to rather live sacrificially and give to the poor. So the question then for us who, who want to follow this subversive king is this. What should we do about this? How should we celebrate the birthday of this king? Now, there are people, an increasing number of radical kingdom people, who are saying we should just opt out of the whole thing. Just quit. And they would say, you know, look, look at it. the pressure we feel to buy stuff. That's part of the system, the brainwashing system, the propaganda system that we got to buy, buy, buy. That's why we, we say things like, I got to get, I got to buy for this person. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I have to buy this. I have to. We're all operating under this awe because there's pressure on us to come through. And they, what these folks would say is, you know, the only way to get out of that is to quit. And I respect that opinion. There's some people at Williams Church who have decided to do that. On the other hand, if you're going to do that, make sure you spend a lot of time talking to your kids about why you're doing it. <laughs> you don't want to raise kids who are just soured at you. And, and here's, the, here, here's the thing. I respect that opinion. But on the other hand, it could come across. You could come across as a self-righteous Scrooge. Right. And you could come across as rude. And the kingdom's never rude. Everything we do is to be done in love. And so the question is, is what's the loving way to, and yet in, in, in honor, a way that honors Christ, a loving way to do Christmas? Because we're certainly not capture, recapturing the subversive message by just going along with the money-making program. That, that's not helpful either. You know, just buy, buy, buy for me and my loved ones. No, something's got to be different. Something's got to be different. Yeah. Uh, a, a first step in this direction, and there is no one answer fits all. Everyone's got to seek God as to how God would have you uh, respond in, the, in your particular situation. So this isn't doctrine given here. This is just you know, trying to share some, some insight. Uh, the balance might be something like this, as simple as this. At least the first step would be to include on your loved one's list that you buy for people who really do have needs. Uh, people who maybe are outside the, the kind of cultural indoctrination as to who you're supposed to buy for uh, during Christmas time. Expand your list of loved ones. Now, we're already doing that, right? We just talked about how we've, in the last few months, had three different ministries that serve the poor, and we've given sacrificially to those. And so this is something we're, we're already doing to some degree. But we felt that around this particular message, there needs to be a particular intentionally subversive thing. Uh, we've given now locally to uh, help the poor. We want to look outside the United States. Is there a way that we can subvert the system here while not opting out and becoming Scrooges, but subverting it in order to serve the poor even outside of the United States? Now, here, here's, here's what we're thinking. We've had, as, as those of you know who have been around here for any length of time, we've had a long relationship with, with a ministry, with several ministries in Haiti. Um, through Providence Ministries and CoFed, we've sent thousands of kids to school. We built a bunch of different buildings and, and latrines, and we're in the process of, of building up a town uh, through CoFed, uh, the town of Lugu. And then about a year ago, with this earthquake, we raised twenty-five or twenty-six thousand dollars, and it was beautiful. So we have this long-standing relationship with the folks in Haiti. We want to maintain that and strengthen that. Now, the reality is this. 30% of the people, only 30% of the people in Haiti have access or ready access to clean water. That means 7 out of 10, for the most part, drink water that is not safe. We're talking about water that's got various bacteria in it, parasites in it, stuff that makes you sick, stuff that you should not be drinking, 7 out of 10. So it, it's, a, it's a devastating situation, even on a good day. But then the earthquake came, which made the devastating situation absolutely catastrophic. And now we hear 
warnings of, in fact, it's not just warnings now, it's a, it's a reality of the cholera outbreak. Cholera is this primarily waterborne uh, thing that gets into your system and it causes violent disruptions and among the young and the old and anyone weak in between, it's, it's often fatal. Uh, the diarrhea it causes is so violent that you can die of dehydration in a matter of hours. So the question is, what can we do about that? And what, what, what we're asking folks to do is this, to expand your loved ones list, the ones you have to buy for, to expand it to include some of these folks in Haiti, to take some of the money that we would spend on, uh, on, on, on folks in, in our, on our normal radar screen of loved ones, and to use that money to buy water for these folks in Haiti. Our goal here is before uh, the next four weeks up to December 19th to raise $21,000 for these folks in Haiti. And what we can do with that, because we realize we've already done a couple of these fundraisers, but we, we feel like this is attainable. $21,000. And what we can do with that is build a well in Lugu uh, and to give them permanent access to clean water, which they've never had before. And then to take half of the money and to uh, fund water drives into the city of Soleil which is the most devastated part of, of, of Haiti. And, and for, for the money that we're, we're, we're raising, if we hit this goal, we can supply water to several thousand people for four months. And, and that's, not, that's not solving the problem, is it? But it's doing something. It's, it's reaching out in the, in the right direction. Uh, we'll work through ministries we have here at Woodland Hills Church, through co-fed ministries and providence ministries, which means every dime we give, we can be sure of it will go to the people who actually need it. And see, if, if, if every person who attends Wilton Hills Church would just give 10 or $20, that would more than, than, than meet the goal. If all the parishioners gave 10 or $20, we'd meet that goal many times over. We're aware that in this economy, some folks can't, can't give. We're aware of that. You can't even buy presents for your own kids. Not, you know, and, and there's no shame in that. Okay, so that's just what it is. But there's others who can do much more than that. And so we're asking folks to prayerfully consider how they can participate in this. We feel it's very important for the spiritual message, the spiritual power of this drive, that the money is not just additional to what you were already going to spend, but actually impacts the way we do Christmas. And so we're asking folks to, to, to ensure that the, the, the finances that go to this, this drive for water in Haiti comes out of stuff we we're already going to buy. The, 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 the message we have is this, that the Water for Haiti Drive, uh, in this word, specifically called to exchange gifts that aren't really needed for the gift of water that is desperately needed. Yeah. I see the way it can work is just something like this. You can take, uh, you know, you were going to buy Johnny four gifts, now you're going to buy him three. Uh, you, you just take part of what you're going to give and, and, and you donate to Haiti. In fact, parents, this is a wonder, if you're not already doing it, a wonderful teaching opportunity to start to teach your kids about how to swim upstream in this culture. Yeah. Christmas isn't just about me. So you sit down and say, you know, we could afford to give you four gifts, Johnny, but, but here's a kid in Haiti and, and, and we're thinking that we should maybe help him have water because he doesn't have any water. He might die of diarrhea. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to like slam the kid too much, but, but you, you know, just broaden the horizon a little bit saying, would you like to give and bring the kid on board with this? To start, you know, getting that, the subversive message of Christmas. Other ways you can do it is like this. Uh, you can just tell people who are going to give you gifts. Hey, you know what? Instead of doing that, would you please, for my sake, uh, donate the money to Haiti? Or if you are going to give a gift to somebody, you might say, you might give them the, uh, the gift of, of, of uh, uh, donating water to Haiti in their name. One of the best Christmas gifts I ever got a couple years ago. My, my daughter and son-in-law gave me a goat. <laughs> a goat for a family in Africa. I loved it. And now this family can live off of this goat, and they did it in my... I would much rather have that than socks. 
<laughs> or, or whatever they were going to give. You know, so just, you can tell people that this is what, what you're doing and invite them in on it. Pray and God will lead you. The thing is, we're part of a subversive kingdom. Um, and, and everything we do, especially celebrating his birthday, is supposed to be subversive. So just, yes, you know, take care of your loved ones. You want to bless your kids and your family. And your love. That's great. But we're called to have a broader conception of loved ones. They're all loved ones. And so we've got to be asking, how do we, how do we share with those folks? Haitians are loved ones too, and unfortunately they're dying, and we can help. In fact, really, we get to help. It's our privilege and honor to be able to help. And so uh, if, if uh, you know, when you come up with what you want to do, you can stop by, just write out a check at, to Woodland Hills Church, and in the memo, put water for Haiti. And you can drop that off at the hub. Or you can put in the offering next week, or you can donate online. Um, there's a number of ways that you can get here. And by the 19th, we want to uh, have $21,000 raised. I want to end with a prayer, not just for this water drive, as important as that is, but that the Holy Spirit would pour out the fire of, of a revolution in us. Uh, to see that this really is a countercultural, subversive thing. And we're called to swim upstream. Uh, and bear witness to a different kind of kingdom. As I pray, would the prayer teams come forward? And I'll invite you now, if there's anything that you would like to have prayed for, maybe it's about discerning how God would have you respond to this message, or maybe it's something else. Come up here and pray with these folks. They'd, they'd love to spend time with you. Father, uh, thank you, God, for being uh, just the beautiful God that you are, the beautiful king that you are, waging war the way that you do. And inviting us to have lives that are significant because we get to participate in your subversive activity. We get to participate in the blood of the Lamb, in the sacrifice of the Lamb. And we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, just put a fire on us. Put a fire. Free us, God, from ways that maybe we've been co-opted uh, by the system. Uh, open our eyes, God, to see uh, the, the subversive way that the kingdom, maybe is ma- the kingdom of the world has made inroads into our life, God. And give us a boldness and a courage to step out of that, and the power of your spirit to step out of that and to refuse to conform, to bear witness to a very different kind of a kingdom, a very different kind of a king, beautiful, sacrificial, loving, the one that will ultimately win the world. Our trust is in you, our loyalty is to to you and none other. You alone are our Lord, you alone are our God, you alone are our king. There is none other, we will bow to no other, not for a second. Give us that spirit of boldness as we leave this place to build your kingdom in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. God bless you guys, go out in peace. Do the battle.